This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. It was on May 31st, 1921 that a white mob in the Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma went on a racist rampage, murdering hundreds of black residents and setting fire to dozens of black-owned businesses, devastating what came to be known as Black Wall Street. For decades, the story of the Tulsa race riots, as they were called, remained unknown to most Americans. In recent years, the sordid history has taken on greater prominence, leading to one of the few remaining survivors of the massacre to testify on Congress a few weeks ago. On Monday, President Joe Biden issued a proclamation marking a day of remembrance on the 100th anniversary. We turn now to Dr. Carlos K. Hill. He's the department chair and associate professor of African and African-American studies at the University of Oklahoma. His books include The Murder of Emmett Till, A Graphic History, Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory, and The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, A Photographic History. Welcome to the program, Professor Hill. Thank you for having me. So first, let's talk about the um, significance of Greenwood in Tulsa itself. It has been come to be known as Black Wall Street. A hundred years ago, how unusual was this vibrant business district? Uh, unusual in the fact that it was uh, entirely or almost entirely a black-run, uh, you know, neighborhood with very, very successful businesses. Was that fairly unusual for the time? Uh, Tulsa was one of a handful of affluent Black communities uh, in America in 1921. Some would even argue that the Greenwood District per capita was perhaps the wealthiest Black community in the country. And so uh, Tulsa, the Greenwood District circa 1921 was, you know, a symbol of Black excellence, a symbol of what was possible even in Jim Crow America, Jim Crow America that lynched Black people, that disenfranchised Black people, an America where Black people very rarely got justice uh, at all. You had in the midst of that, the Greenwood District, this vibrant community of more than 11,000 Black people, uh, more than two, nearly 200 businesses. You had uh, four Black millionaires in the Greenwood District in circa 1921, and you had probably six uh, near millionaires uh, in, uh, in 1921. And when I say millionaires, I mean in today's dollars. And so you had one of the wealthiest uh, Black communities in the country, a, a community that Booker T. Washington, the great uh, African-American leader, probably the, one of the most influential Black leaders in American history, referred to Green, the Greenwood District in 1913 seven years or eight years before the massacre um, as the Negro Wall Street of America. And what Booker T. Washington was uh, trying to help black people in America understand is this, you know, the wealth and the prosperity in Tulsa is possible for you. If you use the same kind of resourcefulness, if you use the same kind of grid and determination as black Tulsans, you too can have a black Wall Street or a Negro Wall Street. and so. The Greenwood District, since the early 20th century, has been a symbol for Black excellence, a symbol for what was possible economically, even in the throes of Jim Crow segregation. 
And so um, 100 years later, I think that still is true. I think the Greenwood District of 1921 is not there, but the people, uh, the spirit of the people uh, is very much the same uh, as the spirit that was in the community uh, 100 years ago. The Washington Post, uh, to mark the 100th anniversary, pointed out that the massacre was sparked by an incident around a young black man who went by the name of Dick Rowland, or Diamond Dick, as he liked to be called, and that there was some implication that, you know, really shares some similarities with the Emmett Till case, where it was thought that he might have assaulted, or it came to be believed that he was uh, he had assaulted a young white girl, but then there's rumors that maybe they were having a relationship, and that that is what sparked this white mob that came in and massacred at least 300 and very likely many, many more black residents of Greenwood and destroyed the community. But was it really that that sparked the riot? Um, because we now know that actually what happened with the Tulsa race riots was fairly common around the country. There were white mobs all over in cities around America, destroying black communities. Yes, um, you're absolutely right on that last point. Um, it was common for black communities to be attacked by white mobs during this period, just two years before the race massacre in over 24 black communities uh, in this country, in major cities even like Chicago, uh, black communities are attacked by white mobs. It was a common phenomenon. What sets Greenwood apart, what sets the race massacre apart is the scope and the scale of the violence. And I would even argue the rapidity at which the community is destroyed, right? In less than 24 hours. And so the race massacre is certainly, um, you know, not unprecedented. Right or excuse me, it's not an exceptional event, but the scope and the scale of the violence was unprecedented. And to to, to answer your first question, um, you were right to talk about uh, Dick Rowland, a young black man uh, who was accused, who was alleged, who allegedly assaulted Sarah Page in a downtown elevator in the Drexel Building. Uh, that certainly set the race massacre in motion. Um, you know, because after these allegations are, are made, um, they, you know, the allegations begin, whites begin to rumor about, you know, what occurred. Some whites believe that Sarah Page had died um, because of the attack. And so rumors are running wild. Uh, news of the attack, as it spreads, whites begin to, uh, you know, talk about lynching Dick Rowland, making an, uh, making an assault on the County Courthouse removing Dick Rowland and then taking justice on him in their minds by, by lynching him, by publicly uh, torturing and lynching him. Um, but the event most that 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 the decisive event that um, precipitates the race massacre is when uh, two groups of black men go downtown to downtown Tulsa to offer assistance to the sheriff because they see this white mob numbering in the thousands, that it's getting out of control. And they believe that the best way to prevent Dick Rowland from being lynched was to physically put their body hmm. between the mob and the jail, between the mob and Dick Rowland and making it clear 
that on June, or excuse me, on May 31st, there would be no lynching of a black man in Tulsa. They did that courageously. And in doing that, um, in, in risking their lives to save a life of a black man, um, you know, in doing so, they, um, you know, the, the white mob was so electrified by seeing the presence of black men, armed black men, offering assistance. That was such an affront to the white supremacy and the Jim Crow segregation, the, the racial etiquette of Jim Crow segregation, that whites just became even more enraged. And one of the white men in the crowd who, who witnessed uh, these black men, a group of about 75 black men come downtown, one white one white spectator is so enraged that he tries to grab the gun of one of the men. And in trying to take it away, a shot, an accidental shot is fired, hits a white person. And from there, right, the mob turns all of their rage from away from Dick Rowland to this group of black men who come downtown to protect him. They begin to shoot at those men. Those men begin to you know, retreat, run away from, from, from downtown. And it's the, the, the violence uh, that, was, is that, that sparks the race massacre is that accidental shot being fired. And from there, all hell breaks loose. And, and to be very clear, the hell that breaks loose is the Tulsa authorities uh, essentially weaponize the mob, the mob that they have been trying to control, trying to tamp down, um, trying to tell to go home. That same mob that was talking about and threatening the lynch dick role, and now the, the police weaponize them, and they weaponize them by giving them the power, giving members they of that same mob them, basically, right? To to deputize mm -hmm. them to 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 tame and you know shoot and kill uh, black people who they believe at this point are in are in um, rebellion against uh, the city of Tulsa. So the city is in ruins in 24 hours, as you said. Um, there are hundreds of people killed. There's a small handful of whites that are killed, but the vast majority, overwhelming majority are black residents. And the survivors of that riot today, there are still a handful of survivors of that riot. Viola Fletcher is one. She's, uh, I believe, 107. She testified in front of Congress just a few weeks ago. And her testimony, which was so powerful, shares just exactly what was done to Greenwood. She talks about how to this day she is unable to afford enough, you know, money to just to, to make ends meet, that she basically lived her life in servitude. Did the Tulsa race right have that effect that the white supremacists of that era wanted, which is here's a successful black community and that's an affront to white supremacy. We have to destroy their wealth. Mm. Certainly, um, the Greenwood district, its affluence, um, you know, drew the ear of whites, uh, rather than compliment, rather than support a community that despite all the barriers placed in its way, was able to thrive, was able to prosper. Um, certainly there were whites who saw in Greenwood, not just resentment of black economic uh, uh, wealth accumulation, but they saw in Greenwood um, the future. 
they were afraid of a world in which black people could meet them as economic equals because the fear was if black people can have political excuse me economic uh uh and social equal uh, political equality then social equality would follow right behind and so that would destroy right economic equality political equality that would destroy jim crow segregation is at least the foundations of it and so greenwood was kind of an, an existential threat to the to to the culture of jim crow segregation in this state and so i think you are correct to put your finger on that but i would say that whites were not necessarily sitting around waiting for the ideal moment to attack the greenwood district um you know that just wasn't that's just how that's not how racial violence operates but certainly that resentment certainly the hatred toward the symbol of what greenwood was um, was a part of them destroying it and certainly in the aftermath of the massacre it was a part of the city uh city's efforts to block the community from rebuilding and so you're absolutely right uh, to put those things in conversation. Why was the history of the Tulsa race massacre up until, you know, just a few years ago, really not known? I imagine, you know, at least outside Oklahoma, outside Tulsa, most Americans didn't know about it. Today, you know, this week on the 100th anniversary, um, we're seeing major newspapers cover the story in great detail. And of course, this past year, we've had a moment of reckoning in this nation around around the Black Lives Matter protests and the killing of George Floyd and so many countless police killings. Um, so perhaps that is, you know, at least uh, forcing the major media to, to cover this horrific incident that happened 100 years ago. But so many years, it was simply not known and not covered in, in American history books, right? Absolutely. And I say to people all the time that you know, the original sin of the city of Tulsa is there was there a refusal to do an, a, an authentic investigation 100 years ago. And because there was never an investigation into what occurred, we don't really know how many people actually died. We certainly don't know where they're buried. These are things that the city does know um, because the, there was martial law declared at 1130 uh, 100 years ago today. And it's, it would be impossible for the city not to know where those bodies are buried because of the ways in which um, the, 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 the National Guard locked the city down um, as, you know, beginning at 1130. And so the idea that, you know, there is no knowledge of where these mass graves are, I think is, is false. But the, the, the original sin was the city, given the, the, the extent of the destruction, given the loss of life, never did a substantive investigation and so you know we don't know just basic things about what occurred it's been left to um you know sort of um, we have to guesstimate you know so we say as many as 300 there could have been 400 there could have been 500 individuals who died as a result and we will never know because the city made sure we wouldn't we, they made sure um that those facts would never see the light of day and so take that context and then add to it a willful denial of what occurred 
um, in the in the weeks following the race massacre, the city, um, you know, articulated that the fault uh, for the race massacre lied squarely with black people, squarely with survivors who came downtown to, um, you know, to protect Dick Rowland. The the city, and particularly the mayor, argued that they are the ones who escalated the situation when there was no situation to be escalated. And so that has that has been one of the reasons why we don't know very much is because the city has covered up, actively covered up what occurred. And then when you think about the intervening decades when even Tulsa-based newspapers would not cover this story, even during commemorations, like there were years, there were decades that went by where local newspapers, even black newspapers, right? did not discuss this history, did not reference this history. There, went, there were decades where it was just not discussed. And so we come to today where we have a hundred years later, an unprecedented outpouring of interest and support for this community. We have even today, uh, President Biden in, in, in the Greenwood district at the Greenwood Cultural Center meeting with survivors. This is unprecedented. This community has seen literally decades go by, presidents come and go, and they never utter a word about this. Hmm. And so we're really in uncharted waters today. I have never, I'm a historian of lynching and racial violence, and I make it my business to understand what is happening in relationship to the justice work related to those, those, you know, those atrocities. And I can say I've never witnessed this level of attention for a single episode of racial, albeit the deadliest attack on a black community in American history. I've never seen this kind of attention, this sustained attention to one single episode. And so my hope and, and my prayer is that this we can bottle up this, this awareness, this interest, and we can we we can leverage it so that people can learn not just about the race massacre, but all the massacres, all the pogroms, all the lynchings that occurred in this country and have occurred over this country's history, because I think that's where the conversation needs to move. It, 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 it should, today it should be about Tulsa. It should be about the Greenwood. They have waited a hundred years for it, but it cannot be just about, it needs to be bigger and broader. We need to be thinking about all of America's black victims and, and then people of color who are who are who have been victims of racial violence. And if we can if we can have that big expansive conversation, then all of this has been worth it. Well, there's two questions finally that lead from that. Uh, Joe Biden on Monday did um, create a proclamation uh, on the, on a day of remembrance, 100 years after the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, which, as you said, is unprecedented. A day later, the Biden-Harris administration announced new actions to build black wealth and narrow the racial wealth gap. So first, the question is, is this the kind of... Um, forward thinking action that you think needs to happen. And then after that, uh, I want to get into the questions around critical race theory that are coming up. But let's first talk about what the Biden-Harris administration announced um, on Tuesday, June 1st, new actions to build black wealth and narrow the racial wealth gap. Um, this, you know, short of reparations, <laughs> is this the kind of systemic addressing of racial violence from hundreds of years ago that you are hopeful for? 
we need to obliterate the way racial wealth gap, not reduce it. Um, and so I would just say that we just need to think bigger and more aggressively about the, the ways in which systematic racism has not just uh, you know, reduced black wealth, but made it impossible to build. And so I think any program needs to be aggressive and, 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 and not just reducing, but obliterating it. I would say this plan is a, is a, is a good start. Um, there is real money, real investment that the Biden administration is ready to offer up. And so that is a good thing, but it's not sufficient. Um, we, we need to stay focused on reparations for victims, survivors, and descendants. And I'm, my hope is that his visit will put pressure on the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma um, to provide the restitution that is deserved by the living survivors and descendants, but also commit to a historic uh, reparations program for the community of Greenwood, because we need to be very clear about something that individuals were killed, right? Businesses, individual businesses and homes were destroyed. But this was this this was violence not targeted at individuals. It was violence targeted at the community as an institution. And as an institution, the community deserves reparations. And nothing less of that will um, suffice because, you know, as as one of my uh, dear friends in Greenwood has said, uh, Pastor Robert Turner, Dr. Robert Turner, uh, who's the pastor of historic Vernon Amy Church, as he has said to me, both in private and he said publicly, that there can be no healing, there can be no um, atonement without reparations. Those two things are conjoined, those things go hand in hand. We can't do one without the other. And so I, I applaud the president and his administration for, for you know, beginning the, this process of reducing the wealth gap. I think it, the wealth gap needs to be obliterated. But I would say in, in tandem with that, we need to hear um, the president uh, utter reparations for victims, survivors, and their descendants. Okay, finally, I know you have to run because it's a very busy time for you, but Professor Hill, what about the fact that there is also now this broad fight breaking out, mostly brought, of course, by Republicans and conservatives around the teaching of critical race theory in colleges and universities. Uh, Oklahoma College uh, banned critical race theory and a, a class that was called white privilege was canceled. Uh, it's now coming up. This, is, this seems to be be the sort of new pet peeve of the, the far right. Um, but isn't the history of the Tulsa race massacre, um, you know, part of the broader framework of American history that is exactly the reason why we need something like critical race theory in colleges and universities to, to frame for our younger generations that America has a sordid history we've never dealt with? I can't tell you how... Uh maddening, how frustrating, how disappointing, how disillusioning it is to see what the state of Oklahoma, the state that I live in, the state where my kids go to school, uh, you know, pass a bill, pass a law that outlaws critical race theory. 
a theoretical tradition that has allowed us, that has helped us to understand the experiences of Black people and people of color in this country um, in a way that can, um, you know, aid in their um, identity building, aid in liberation movements, uh, aid in, in, in Americans understanding this history in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. And so it is, uh, it is completely, it, it is so offensive that this state on the 100th anniversary of the race massacre passed such a bill that would make it impossible. Oh, I, was, I shouldn't say impossible. With this, that would discourage teachers in the state of Oklahoma to teach this issue because of fear of being fired, fear of a parent calling a school principal or a super, or excuse me, uh, the superintendent and saying, you have a teacher who is teaching critical race theory because they're teaching my kids about the history of slavery and I don't like it. That is the that is what the bill now law has done. Made teachers um, think twice about teaching the history that they should be teaching, and that they know they should be teaching to their kids uh, 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 in classrooms around the state of Oklahoma. And so, um, we we have to fight this uh, law, and we have to fight all laws like it. Because just think about this: for a hundred years. Um, for nearly 100 years, we have not taught the history of the race massacre. And in this moment where the world is paying attention, the state of Oklahoma is saying, we don't really want to teach it. And we're going we're gonna to make it difficult. We're going to make it create a hostile environment for which teachers can actually teach this. Uh, and so the world is ready to understand this history. But Oklahoma, the place where it occurred, is not. And that's what the bill has really done. And, and, and again, it, it's so maddening, it's so frustrating. It's such a slap in the face uh, to this community who waited for the world to pay attention. Now that the world is paying attention, the state is saying, oh, no way, wait a minute. We, we, you know, we can't teach this history anymore because it makes people feel upset. It makes white people feel bad about themselves and their history. And, and, and we don't want that. And so, uh, it is so frustrating that to 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 be be in a state where this is the political reality, but but that's what the political reality is. Well, Professor Hill, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can people follow your work? Can you give out a website? Yeah, they can go to carloskhill.com and they can learn about um, you know more about me, more about my work, um, and and some of the things that I'm involved with. And that's Carlos with a K, carloskhill.com. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Carlos K. Hill, Department Chair and Associate Professor of African and African-American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He's written several books, including the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, a photographic history. And we've been discussing the 100th anniversary of that massacre. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify.